of Rohan. My brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of woe and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear of this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. So says Aragorn as he stands before the black gate in Lord of the Rings with the fearsome hordes of Mordor hopelessly outnumbered. Uh, they have not got a chance to survive, it would appear. And yet he gives this rallying speech to stir the men to stand and to fight. Um, here's another one. You might remember this one. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. Fight and you may die. Run and you will live at least a while, and dying in your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance to come back here as a young man and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our... Freedom! Freedom! <laughs> what does that do to you? Well, as a bloke, your blood rises. Testosterone is flying around your system and you're saying, Ah, we can take them! We can take them. And I think that that is what is going on as the Apostle Paul finishes his letter to the Ephesians. He is writing to stir these Christians to face the challenges of living the Christian life. Because let's be honest, there are lots of challenges to living the Christian life. John is a Christian, but his wife is not. They have a daughter who John tries to take along to church with him, and who he tries to disciple at home by reading the Bible with her and praying with her. But his wife has times where she becomes so angry with her husband that she forbids that he takes their daughter to church. She has often tried to undermine her husband and at times has been incredibly spiteful. On one Sunday morning, she was so angry at the thought that he was going to take their daughter to church that she called the police and made false allegations that he was being an abusive husband and father. He returned home one day to find some of his most precious books cut up with the scissors. He came home one day and found his Bible had been cut up with scissors. He wonders how he can keep going. When Jimmy's mother died, um, Simon and Kathy actually allowed Jimmy to stay with him, to show him love and care. But despite initially making a great start, as time went on, Jimmy started skipping school, and he started hanging around with the wrong guys, and he started taking drugs. And they noticed that things started disappearing in their home. And they suspected Jimmy. But when they confronted him, he would only get angry 
and aggressive. And after these events played themselves out over and over again, finally the time came when they said, look, you've got to leave. A few weeks later, their house was burgled and lots of precious jewelry was taken. Uh, one of their cars was taken and they later discovered from the police it was Jimmy. Kate has tried to be a really good worker, but her boss keeps demeaning her and making fun of her. For years, he's been verbally abusive and constantly critical, and because she needed the money, she had to stay put, and now it's beginning to affect her health. She struggles to sleep at night. She feels uh, very anxious on Sunday as Monday approaches, and tears come easily. How can she keep going? Tullian took the job of being the senior pastor of a large established church, knowing that it would be a challenge. But nothing would have prepared him for uh, what took place as the reaction to the much-needed much change uh, uh, began to unfold in the church. Um, it was a church that was going into decline, but those who were in it didn't see it, and they didn't welcome the changes that he was bringing. Uh, choir members stormed out as he preached. Some members would stare at him with angry and aggressive faces during their sermons. Anonymous, spiteful letters were sent to him and his fellow elders. False rumors were spread about him and his wife. His car was keyed in the church parking lot. Factions formed and former leaders were approached to attempt to dismiss him. He was constantly battling nausea, uh, not sleeping at night, feeling great anxiety. He was not sure how he could keep going. Now, some of the names have been changed there, but these are all true stories. What does God have to say to this? Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 6, and you'll find this on page uh, 1177, 1177. I'm going to read from the top right-hand column of page 1177. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying on. Always keep on praying for all the saints. Let's just pray now, shall we?
Oh, Father, we need your help even now. We know that the evil one would want to distract us, uh, to, 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 to uh, help us to see, uh, think that uh, this is not a big deal. And so we pray that you grant us the uh, faith to believe your word. Help me as I preach to preach it faithfully. Lord, help each person present that we may receive your word and act upon it in this coming week. We seek uh, extra special grace, even at this time, in Christ's precious name. Amen. We've been thinking in this series of the book of Ephesians about the problem of spiritual amnesia, where we forget who we are in Christ. And the other side of this is that we forget that in Christ, we have a great enemy in the devil. Ephesians starts by reminding us how blessed we are in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father, it says, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And yet it ends with this sobering reminder that here on earth, we are in a battlefield with Christ. We are blessed in Christ in the heavenly realms, and yet we live on earth on the battlefield, but he wants us to know we live it with Christ. What each of these people that I mentioned earlier, what they need to remember is that their struggle is not just a struggle with people. But they're engaged in a struggle of spiritual warfare. The apostle has covered so many amazing things in this letter, hasn't he? Uh, Warren Wiersbe, I think, puts these three headings of the overview of the letter. Uh, The first three chapters are about the wealth of the Christian. Uh, We've considered uh, how this amazing grace of God has taken rebel sinners and made, made them alive with Christ. The way that he is at work in the world, uh, making brand new humanity, a brand new people out of Jews and Gentiles uh, from all the different nations and pulling them together in one new humanity in Christ through the blood that Christ shed on the cross. We've seen how central the Christian church is in the history of the world. We've seen how it is the very center of God's purposes for the cosmos, that the church is the arena in which God displays his awesome glory to the whole cosmos. This is how significant the church is. And then he's gone on to tell us about not only the wealth of the Christian, but then the walk of the Christian in chapters 4 through to 6 verse 9. There's a way of, of, of living that is in line with the calling that we've received as Christians. It means that we're no longer going to live just like everybody else who doesn't know Christ. We're not going to follow the pattern of life in which the world that doesn't love Christ, in where it walks, we're, we're walking in a different way. We are people who are being brought into a profound unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. That we grow in maturity together as we, we learn from each other's diverse gifts. We've seen how this call of Christ changes everything about the way we live our lives, the way we deal with our speech, the way we relate to work, uh, the way that we deal with our money, the way that we uh, behave in, our, um, in, in, in the sexual arena. But there's one more crucial thing that all these Christians need to keep before them, 
as they seek to live the Christian lives. And it says in verse 10, finally, despite all this, I mean, it's been pretty comprehensive teaching, isn't it? But finally, there's one thing, there's one thing that we all need to be aware of uh, against the backdrop of this glorious epistle, and that is that we are living our lives on a battlefield. We're working out all this biblical teaching in the context of spiritual conflict, of great opposition. It is true for them, and it's true for us. And really today, I, I just have a short time to give a kind of a brief overview of the teaching of spiritual warfare. If you want something a bit more in depth, you could get hold of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, The Christian Warfare. Uh, he does 26 sermons on three verses, verses 10 to 13. So he will give you a lot more detail. And it's all edifying good stuff. But today, we're just going to do one sermon. I'm not going to try and fit 26 sermons uh, in this one morning. We're going to come to the table. Don't panic. There's two commands that we need to remember with spiritual warfare. And the first is a general command, and it is this. Be strong in the Lord by putting on His armor. Be strong in the Lord by putting on His armor. This is spiritual warfare, but we're not called to engage in it in our own strength. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. This command is not like that rousing speech uh, at the Black Gate in Tolkien's book or of William Wallace. It's not, it's not a call for men to kind of get their adrenal glands going and stir up as much strength as their muscles and sinews can manage. No. This command is to be strengthened by the Lord Jesus. To be strengthened by His mighty power. Remember, the, the, the power of God has been demonstrated in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. We saw that from Ephesians chapter 1. His mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of God above every authority, power, and rule. Well, that's, that's the mighty power of the Lord Jesus. And we are called to be strengthened in His power, in His might as we engage in this spiritual battle. Do you remember the story of King David as uh, uh, he and his uh, band of brothers were engaging in some warfare? Some people came and, and took their goods and their wives, and it was at the lowest ebb. They come back exhausted from a fight to find all their stuff had gone, and uh, the men were talking about stoning David. And it says in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 that David was greatly distressed because each one of his men were bitter in spirit. But what did David do? David found strength in the Lord his God. And that's what the apostle is commanding these Christians to do as they engage in spiritual warfare. We have to take time to find strength in the Lord for this spiritual fight. Not only does the Lord provide the power, but he also provides the armor. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. A little earlier, Andy read from the Old Testament. And actually, all the spiritual armor, all the armor that's described here, is taken up from references from the Old Testament. And it is all armor that is worn by God himself or the Messiah. 
the, the, the thing that is crucial for us to understand here is that the Lord is the one who does the fighting. The Lord is the warrior. From Isaiah 59, we saw that actually the Lord looks out upon his people and is appalled that there is no one who can, who can be involved in this salvation. In fact, his people are struggling with their own sin, with their own unrighteousness, with their own failure, with their own weakness. And so the Lord himself has to take up the fight. We see the Lord as the warrior who dresses for battle to win the victory for his people that they could not possibly win for themselves. He looked and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So intervene. So his own arm worked for salvation. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And as we engage in this spiritual warfare, this is such a wonderful thing to realize. We are not called to be the ones who uh, go out and fight in an uncertain uh, battle. It's not like the Lord is, is one of these generals in the First World War, a long way back from the, the action lines. You know, as the men go over the top, the Lord's not the general at the back going, oh, I hope they're okay. No, the Lord is the one who's donning the armor. He is the one who has actually won the fight in the coming of his Messiah King. As Jesus came uh, and, and lived out his life in perfect submission to the Father. And as he went willingly and sacrificially to the cross to pay the price for our sin. Taking the wrath of God for us. Winning the great victory on the cross. And, and God declares that victory through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has won the victory. When it says, put on the full armor of God, this is what it's saying. It's saying, the Lord is giving us His armor. He has won the victory. We are to put on the victorious armor of God and stand in the Lord's. There is a real spiritual fight. There is real warfare. But the victory is not in doubt if we stand in the armor of the Lord. That's how we're to be strong in the Lord. But why must we do this? Well, verse 12 and 13, because we are wrestling with spiritual evil. Put on the full armor of God, verse 11, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who is our enemy? Do you see that our enemy is ultimately not flesh and blood? This is a crucial insight. This is a big insight for John, Simon and Kathy, Kate and Tullian. Firstly, they shouldn't be surprised that they're engaged in a soul-sapping conflict. As Christians, we all live our lives in the context of spiritual warfare. But secondly, the enemy is not John's wife. The enemy is not Jimmy. 
The enemy is not Kate's boss at work. The enemy is not Tullian's congregation. The enemy is the devil and his forces. We're not fighting against people. We are fighting against the devil in order to win people from the grip of the devil. That is such a crucial understanding as we think about the conflict and, and tensions of our lives and the warfare that we are engaged in. People are not the enemy. The devil is. And we fight against the devil to win these people from the grip of Satan. You see, if there are those in Tullian's congregation, which is in Florida, by the way, um, who have allowed the devil uh, a foothold in their anger, this should be a source of pity and compassion for Tullian. Recognizing the true source of their spite and malice is one that is inspired by Satan. John's wife. Um, or Jimmy, or Kate's boss, are acting like we all did when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. When we followed the ways of this world and were ruled by the devil, who is the spirit who is at work stirring up disobedience, as we learned in chapter 2. Well, of course, yes, they're behaving just as people behave when they're under the control and influence of the devil. We should not be surprised, but we should be aware of who it is that's stirring up this disobedience. We were just like that before we experienced such rich mercy, such love, such grace from God. See, when we understand this, we will not retaliate and return spite with spite, but instead with mercy and love. Now that's a crucial insight for engaging spiritual warfare. Now we don't get a biography here of the devil. We don't get an explanation of all the, uh, the forces of darkness as much as we might uh, want to uh, have that knowledge. The, they are simply presented here as a given fact. Many of the Ephesian Christians um, had come out of the context of occult and marriage. You can read this in the book of Acts. Uh, when they came to Christ, one of the signs of their true repentance is they brought all their magic scrolls and they burned them in a big pile. And, and the value of their scrolls was worth a small fortune. That's how deeply embedded they were in occult and magic. And, and such was the spiritual evil climate of Ephesus with its pagan worship. There was enough business for Jewish exorcists to be running around and, and, and running a business. And of course, they came a cropper and you can read about that. So Paul just takes it as a given understanding that there is this spiritual uh, warfare and that there is this evil opponent. And John Stott in his commentary makes three points about, about this. That the forces, firstly, arrayed against Christians are powerful. Look at the description. There are authorities. They are powers of this dark world. There is talk of, of a controlling influence in the world. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil? The devil could even make this claim. Uh, Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. The devil still has some authority and influence in the world. So they are 
uh, powerful. They're, secondly, they're wicked. Of course, power is a neutral thing. It can be exercised for good or for evil. Well, these enemies use their power destructively for evil. They're powers of darkness. They are forces of evil. Uh, they are malicious. They have no scruples. This is the nature of the forces of darkness. They play dirty. And thirdly, they're cunning. Uh, it's described in verse 11 as the schemes of the devil. The devil uses cunning strategies to attack Christians. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul can say how the, the, the devil can appear as an angel of light to catch the unsuspecting. He can seduce us into compromise. He can deceive us into error. Evil rarely looks evil when it first confronts us. It gains entrance by appearing attractive to us, a desirable, but it is, it is a baited hook. It is a camouflage trap. That is often how the devil works. And his darkest black op is to convince people he doesn't even exist. They never see him coming. Now, of course, the devil is not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. And yet he's been observing human history for thousands of years. And he is a fearsome foe. On earth there is no equal, we sang in the hymn earlier. Victory in this conflict cannot be achieved with mere human effort. It can't be done just with, with techniques, with strategies. In our own power, we would not last very long. Yet, we can take our stand against the devil's schemes when we rely on the Lord's strength and we put on the Lord's armor. So verse 13, he hits it home. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. In the light of this, this terrible evil foe, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. There are times, of course, when it appears that we're not of particular interest to the devil and uh, life seems pretty peaceful, but we should not be lulled into false sense of security. The devil is a defeated foe, a deposed foe, and yet he's still dangerous. Just think about the last few months that we've had in Libya. Uh, Gaddafi was well and truly beaten, wasn't he? He was a deposed leader. And yet, he was still dangerous. He was on the loose. He still had some power, some authority. Uh, there, were, there, there were fears of how he could still launch sudden and surprising attacks. Well, I think that's a good illustration of what the devil is like. A defeated and deposed foe, and yet a dangerous one. The day of evil can come for the Christian. The day of severe, intense temptation, the moment of great darkness, of doubt. And my friends, we're being warned to be prepared for that day. It will come. So put on the full armor of God so that when that day comes, you will stand. And that general command then gives way to some more specific commands in verses 14 to 17. We're told to stand firm with gospel armor. And he details more specifically 
that armor. Notice it's a command. Stand firm. Men of Gondor, stand firm. It's a command. Stand firm in the battle. Don't lose ground. Don't retreat. Don't compromise. Stand firm. We're at a time where many are losing their head on clear biblical teachings. My friends, stand firm. Many are being seduced by the world and their own flesh are being lulled uh, lulled into false insecurity by the devil. We are to stand firm. And how do we do that? Well, we put on the full armor of God. Now, this imagery of armor uh, would not be hard for them to to visualize, uh, nor the Apostle Paul, who often spent a lot of time being chained up to Roman soldiers and uh, being traveled from prison to prison with an escort of soldiers. And they in Ephesus would have seen Many Roman soldiers wearing this full kit. And so Paul takes this as a fitting analogy to press home his point. But you know what? Each part of this armor is really a different way of describing the same thing. He's saying, put on the gospel. Put on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be girded around with the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these pieces of armor are just a way, a different way in for us to reflect on the, the glorious truth of the gospel, which is the defense of the Christian. So think about the belt of truth. You know, obviously the belt's the bit that holds all the bits together. All the bits of armor held in place. It enabled the person to fight with everything secured in place. Ephesians 1 verse 13 says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The belt of truth is the gospel of your salvation. Make sure it's on tight every morning. And of course that gospel truth calls us to be people who speak the truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Well, the breastplate, of course, was the bit on the front that protected the soldier's chest against all blows and all arrows. Remember what we read from Isaiah 59, verse 17? The Lord puts on His breastplate of righteousness. We need to be armed and protected by God's own righteousness. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? We are sinners who sin and we deserve God's judgment. And yet through putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his death for us, he takes our sin and we are declared righteous, objectively right with God. That is the defense on the front against the attack of the evil one who would sling uh, his uh, sword into the middle of our chest. No, we stand with the breastplate of the righteousness of the Lord. And having been declared righteous, we are people who uh, press on and work out that righteousness, imitating God in His holiness, in His righteousness. Well, think about the shoes, the gospel of peace. Uh, Roman soldiers wore these boots with the kind of little studs underneath to help them to march and to give them a solid footing 
when they were fighting. So standing our ground is about standing our ground on the gospel of peace, of peace with God. That now that we're justified, we have peace with God. And we're those who are eager to share this good news of how you too can have peace with God. Think about Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Well, these are the shoes of the gospel that we stand in. Your God reigns. Good news. Peace with God. That will give you solid footing in the fight. Or think about the shield of faith, verse 16. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The word for shield is not the little little shield, it's the huge big shield. You see these guys carrying there. It would cover the whole body. And it was made of, of wood and cloth and leather. And they would soak the shields in water so that when the enemy would fire a volley of flaming arrows, uh, not only would the arrow be stopped, but the flames would be put out as it hit this wet shield. Well, you need to have the shield of faith in this spiritual warfare. The devil can mount attacks from anywhere. When we least expect it, his flaming arrows can come. Those mischievous thoughts, uh, those accusations that try to inflame our conscience with false guilt. Those doubts, those thoughts of despair. There's no point. I'm all on my own. It's hopeless. Or the external assaults of persecution and false teaching. Or we need to lay hold of God's resources by faith. Pick up the shield of faith. Faith lays hold of the promises of God to to deal with the attacks of doubt and depression. His promises are in the gospel. And we grab hold of the shield of faith by believing those promises. And not by going what we feel like. By trusting what God says is true. Faith lays hold of of the power of God in the times of temptation. In Proverbs 30, it says this, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So take refuge in him. Come to him in faith. Depend on his promises and his power. Or there's the helmet of salvation. Of course, obviously protecting the soldier's head. And this is the helmet of God's salvation. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his his head. This helmet that we put on is a salvation that is given to us. Achieved by Christ. Given to us. Put it on. It will fully protect. No sword blade will come through this shield of salvation. Or the sword of the Spirit. And the sword here is, is, is the description of the short sword that was used in, in close contact battle. Do you know whose sword this is? This is the Messiah's sword. This is the sword that the Lord Jesus used. In Isaiah 11 verse 4 it says this, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. 
God's word is the sword of the Spirit. And in particular, it is the view of speaking God's word. The word there is rhema. It is the speaking out of God's word that the Spirit often uses in spiritual warfare to both protect and to go on the attack. Remember how the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, how did he defend himself? protect himself as the devil came to tempt him in the wilderness the devil brought temptation what did he do he quoted scripture man shall not live on bread alone but by every word that comes from his mouth Jesus took up the sword of the spirit in his own temptation and my friends this is what we must take up if we want to stand in the times of temptation This is why there is great value in memorizing Scripture, isn't it? Uh, I don't always have the Bible to hand when I'm feeling tempted, but if I've got some Scriptures logged in my head, it can be of great service to me to speak the truth out against the, the false, fiery darts that come against me, against the times of attack. We believe that God's Word is powerful. We believe that. Why do we spend so much time reading it and preaching from it? Why do we use it in Christianity Explored? Why do we go through Mark's gospel with non-Christians? We believe in the power of the word of God, don't we? The spirit who inspired this will take this up and can use it to rescue and redeem people from the clutches of Satan and bring them into his kingdom. It is a mighty tool, is the word of God. Take it up. Take it up. And the thing that suffuses all of this language of armor is in verse 18, the importance of prayer. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. See all the alls there? Prayer is what is the context in which we uh, adopt and take up all these pieces of armor. This is such a crucial verse that I'm going to hold it over for the new year. I'm going to preach on it on the Sunday uh, as the motto text for next year and as the, as the start of a week of prayer that we're going to have in January. So we'll come back to that. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. But this is what the Lord Jesus said. As Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, the Lord Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The victory is assured. Christ is the king who will conquer. We stand in his victory. So the question today is, are we going to stand firm in the Lord are we going to take up the armor of God today well the answer could be no we can struggle on with our identity amnesia forget who we are forget that we have an enemy my friends we will not stand firm in the day of evil when the attack comes and in fact we may well become part of the darkness allowing the devil to get a foothold in our lives he can do this in churches if we're not careful 
we can be duped by Satan and be used by him to further his cause rather than the cause of Christ. Or the other option is we can say, yes, I'm going to stand firm in the Lord's. I'm going to put on his armor. Now we need every bit of this armor, but let me just quickly illustrate as I close. Thinking back to John and his unbelieving wife. John needs to stand his ground, doesn't he? Standing steady in the shoes of the gospel of peace. He needs to stand his ground for the sake of his daughter. If he leaves the home, he would leave the opportunity of being a godly influence on her life. But he also needs God's strengthening power in order to love and serve his wife, even as she's behaving so spitefully towards him. To stay and fight with love requires supernatural resources, doesn't it? Simon and Kathy, uh, they need to put on the helmet of salvation, even as they struggle with the pain and disappointment of the way that Jimmy had treated them. Remembering that God had already given them the greatest gift in his son coming to save them, that God's loving forgiveness of them can empower them to be able to forgive Jimmy. And yet also they need to put on the belt of truth. They were right in calling Jimmy to live respectfully in their home. And his repeated rejection meant that he had to face the real consequences. And they need to be encouraged in the belt of truth. Kate, well, she needs to hold up the shield of faith, doesn't she? As the devil whispers in her ear that she is worthless and insignificant. She needs to recall the truth of God's word and what it says about her true identity in Christ. She needs to trust these promises and as she holds up that faith, it will put out the devil's fiery darts. She needs to put on the breastplate of righteousness and recall that her value and her worth is not determined by what her boss thinks of her. It is rooted in God's declaration that she is now righteous in Christ. Her father loves her as a dearly loved child. No one can take that from her. Tullian. Well, Tullian needs the breastplate of righteousness. He needs the shield of faith, the belt of truth. The truth is that all of us need the whole lot, don't we? He needs to remember that his right standing before God was not on the basis of, of what other people think of him, even if that is people in his church, but only by God's grace. He needs to take his stand uh, in the shoes of the gospel of peace and not return evil for evil, but instead be a proclaimer of God's gospel good news and he needs to take up the sword of the spirit the word of God to battle against the devil who's at work making mischief in the congregation by reminding people of the gospel of the truth of God's word in an article I read last week he speaks of this something changed at Christmas in his church we felt like the ship had turned as I started to preach through Colossians the series was called Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that was a foundation-laying series of 22 sermons. Basically, it was me saying that the answer is the gospel. 
The answer to everything we've been through as a church, the answer to everything you will go through as an individual, the answer to the brokenness of your marriage and the brokenness of your family, the answer is the gospel. It is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus a particular style of music. It's not Jesus plus a certain agenda. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Well, what about you for this week ahead? What will you do? Is it hard to love your wife? Is it hard to respect your husband? It's time to fight for your marriage. It's time to fight with the weapons of the gospel. Children are being very testing and difficult. Maybe they're wandering away. It's time, men, to fight for your family. To fight with the armor of the gospel. It's time to stand. Stand in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand.